Well, Lord willing, I don't have any other plans yet, but you guys know how those things can change. Uh, this is the, the next to last, excuse me, the next to last <coughs> sermon in a series on Luke. Luke portraying the Word made flesh. Uh, next week, Lord willing, we'll finish that up. This morning ends kind of a, a three-part look at the way the Word calls us. We looked at Jesus' interaction with um, the scribes and the Pharisees where they accused him of hanging out with sinners. And he said, I came for this purpose, to call sinners to repentance. And in chapter 6, how he calls his disciples and calls them to a a completely different way of thinking, which leads to a completely different way of, of living and acting. All these are tied together by the call that we will look at this morning, seen in chapter 7, verses seven or 11 to 17, the call to life. The word calls, calls us to life. And we see it in this simple but poignant story of Jesus raising a widow's son. Let me read that for us. Luke seven eleven to 17. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, Arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. So ends the reading of God's holy, infallible, inerrant word. As we come before it this morning, once again, let's join our hearts together in prayer. Our God and Father, we come before your word. Now we ask your blessing upon this time. We ask, as always, that you would fulfill the promise that you have made, that when your word goes out, it does not return to you void or empty. Instead, it accomplishes everything that you purpose for it is successful in the things for which you send it. May that be true here this morning. And for us, we ask that you would fill us to overflowing with your Holy Spirit, to open our eyes and our ears to see and hear the things that you would teach us this morning. And in so doing, plant your word deep within us, make it a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, so that we may walk according to what it teaches. Father, All of this, again, we ask in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Yesterday I went to a funeral. A friend of the family, if you will. A woman who had spent 40 years. She just earlier this year had her 40th anniversary with Wycliffe. Translating the Bible, the New Testament, into West African languages. Incredible, remarkable life. And a number of people, she had cancer and had 
prepared for her own funeral and had asked certain people to, to share some things at her service. And uh, one of the speakers, an elder at the church, related a story about John Owen, the great theologian. On his deathbed, <coughs> a friend came to visit John Owen and said, Well, I find you still among the land of the living. And John Owen said, No, I'm still among the land of the dying. <laughs> this is powerful, but soon I will be in the land of the living. <laughs> That's powerful. I could stop right there. That is powerful. What an attitude. But that's so true if we think about this world that we live in. It gives us a different perspective as followers of Jesus and of his word. Really, this life, as we've seen in chapter 6, this life really isn't life at all. And the world knows this too. You can look at it from a medical perspective. Doctors will say this. Or a biologist, a scientist. You know, they talk about the, the process of, of aging. And we get to a certain point where we've matured, we've grown up. And from then on, from then on to the end, it's, we're slowly dying. We're slowly fading away. Completely different kind of context, but it, it reminds me of... Uh, a line from an old Western movie, the outlaw Josie Wales, being hunted by a bounty hunter, and he's finally confronted by one, and the guy comes in and says, well, you know, the guy's got to make a living somehow. And Josie Wales said to him, dying ain't much way of a living, boy. Dying ain't much of a living. But that's what we have on this earth. That's what we have. Without Christ. Death of a loved one is a painful reminder of that truth. We've seen it, been saddened by this in our own congregation, even recently. Mothers and friends, a husband who died too soon. We've seen and experienced the, the reality of death <clears throat> and the sadness of it. But also we've seen prayers answered in, in powerful ways. Those near death who were spared. And we prayed for one this morning again. Nevertheless, even if death is spared, even if time is given, it comes inevitably to all of us. It's that old saying, there's two truths, two realities for every single person, death and taxes. Another way of thinking about this that I've mentioned to you all before, I'm not into horror movies. I, it's not my thing. I'm kind of distantly detached, but fascinated by this whole zombie apocalypse thing. And how it strikes me that it's more true than people realize. The world around us is full of walking dead, spiritually dead corpses, going about life, on the road to death because of sin. And to me, that's part of what's so remarkable about the things that we see and can learn from this little passage this morning. Again, the third part of a, 
of, a, of, of three things that we've seen here in, in these latter chapters of, of the opening of Luke, where the word calls, he calls people to repentance again, to faith, and he calls disciples to walk with him, to follow him, but he also calls to life, real life, meaningful and permanent life. That's what I want to focus on this morning, that call to life from the Word made flesh, illustrated for us in this story in Luke 7. And what we see, what's unique about Jesus is merely by speaking. His Word has the power to call the dead to life. But he will also, at the end, call those who have died to rise up, arise to life everlasting. Again, we've talked about how if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, we look at the things in chapter 6, those who are blessed are those who have their mind set on things above, the promises of God in the future. It's a pity that those around us are occupied with their own satisfaction. Woe to those who are satisfied. Woe to those who have. Woe to those who receive men's praise. How, how sad, how terrible that is. That's our calling, to have that otherworldly perspective. But then Jesus calls us to live completely differently as well. Love your enemies. (laughs) Love them. Even sinners love their friends. You, my followers, love your enemies. Do good to them. Pray for them. Bless them. And then worry about your own sin more than the sin of others. Get that log out of your own eye before you worry about the speck in your brother's eye. Don't be judgmental. What's I think the remaining truth that we need to to hear is that none of that is possible without the call of Jesus from death to life. None of it is possible without the quickening work of the Holy Spirit. Just want to do a quick review of the story this morning and then work through just a few lessons. It's a simple story. It's a wonderful, simple little story that Luke kind of throws in here, and it would be easy to, to run through it and kind of pass it by and say, oh, wow, isn't that neat what Jesus did, without stopping and thinking about it a little bit, which is what I want to do, hopefully, this morning. Here's Jesus traveling with his disciples, a great crowd, again, following him. Wherever he goes, he comes to a town called Nain. It's in an interesting location that I'll get to in a bit. <clears throat> a few miles south of Nazareth. The location is interesting because it's about two miles from another small town, Shunem, where the Shunammite woman lived. That's no accident, but I'll come back to that. So as Jesus and the crowd following approach, they see a funeral procession leaving the town. A dead man who's the only son of a widowed woman, which means she's got nothing to support her. She's on the fringes of society now. She has no property. She has no way of having her own income. 
She's dependent upon the, the mercy and the kindness of others. And who's the first one to come and show mercy and kindness? <laughs> Jesus. Luke says Jesus saw her and had compassion. And he said something that might seem odd at first. Do not weep. Let me tell you, when you're in the midst of sorrow, the last thing you want from someone who's so supposedly comforting you is saying, it's okay, don't cry. Don't be sad. What do you mean, don't be sad? Of course I'm sad. You're supposed to mourn with me. <laughs> so why does Jesus say that? Well, because he knows something that we don't. It makes sense, given what he's about to do. So he touches the bier. The bier is a cot or a stretcher being carried by other men with a dead man on it. And they stop. He looks at the young man, the dead man, and says, young man, I say to you, arise. Arise. That is a command. It is not optional. You cannot disobey it. (laughs) When the word speaks, when the word commands... What have we said about the word? It compels a response. And when he commands, he must be obeyed. And so the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Is there a reaction by those around? Oh, yeah. Fear seized them. Who wouldn't be afraid? Who does this sort of thing? Who can do this sort of thing? And so they cry out, a great prophet has arisen among us. God himself has visited his people. And Luke tells us, as he's told us before, stories spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. Simple little story. So some lessons that we can draw from it. I want to start at the end. This reaction, God has visited us, a great prophet has arisen. Elisha, the story we read for the Old Testament reading, lived in the 800s B.C., probably died in the 830s. Jesus' ministry is roughly in the 30s A.D. So it's been 800, 850 years since Elisha's ministry as God's prophet. Now, Jesus is approaching a town two miles, from where the Shunammite woman lived. And he does something that hasn't been done in Israel for over 850 years. He raises a dead son to life. It's no accident that this happened right next door to where Elisha's miracle took place. Now there are differences in the story. Elisha is interacting with a wealthy woman and wants to do something for her in return for her kindness. Gives her a son. But that son, after he grows up, dies. And so she sees it as a very bitter gift. How could you give me a son only to have him die? And we see Elisha going through great commotion. All these different things he does. Laying himself on top of this child before it is raised to life. Still, it's an incredible Miracle performed by the prophet Elisha. A dead child raised to life. But compare that with Jesus. 
no gestures, no laying down, no walking back and forth, not even a prayer, not even a prayer, simply the command, arise. And the sun gets up. That's power. This is the word, the same word, that in the beginning spoke and created life itself, that now speaks and brings the dead to life. It's no wonder people react with fear, reverent fear, yes, but they're also afraid. Who is this guy? They rightly recognize that Jesus is a great prophet. Here's Elisha, or someone like him, and that through him God has visited them. But they don't quite get the full extent of what that means. They don't quite get it all. Luke has, of course, a lot more to say about that, 24 chapters worth. But Jesus' act of compassion, remember Elisha also, his act was an act of compassion, so near to where Elisha's miracle took place, is a powerful message to those who are willing to hear and pay attention. Here is the word of God made flesh in your presence. This man is God. This man deserves our worship, our service, our praise, and our love. They may not have gotten that message, but we who have the whole of Scripture have no excuse. When we read this, we cannot come to any other conclusion that this man is the Son of God, God himself. And if that's true, then he deserves all of our worship, all of our service, all of our praise, all of our love, all of our obedience. So that when he calls us to love our enemies, <laughs> we love our enemies. When he calls us to live differently than the world around us, we do it to the best of our ability by the power of the Spirit. So clearly this is God. Another lesson is, is from Jesus' compassion. And really it's God's compassion if this is God in the flesh. The Lord saw the widow's situation. Luke says in verse 13, the Lord saw her. He's making a point. This is God's compassion on this widow. Saw her sorrow. And he entered very intimately into her life to give comfort. Very personal, a very intimate way. He touched the beer that the, the young man was being carried on. He got right in there with them and, and touched that beer. Something that would make others unclean. Those men carrying the dead man have to go through ritual purification and cleansing after that process. The uncleanness of death transferred to them and it has to be cleaned off. But like we saw with the leper, when Jesus, the Son of God, the Word made flesh, touches, the transfer goes the other way. Leprosy does not go to Jesus. Uncleanness does not go to the, the Son of God. Rather, healing goes to the leper. And as we'll see, life and cleanness goes to the dead man. The unclean is made clean. The dead man is made alive. The Son is restored 
to his mother. Jesus, or, or Luke says it very poignantly, but very simply in verse 15. Jesus gave him to his mother. What a gift. Gave the son back to the mother. Restored their relationship. Why? There's no other reason given in this account except that he had compassion on her. He cared for her. He loved her. He saw her need. He saw her sorrow. So we see and learn here something about the profound and deep love that God has for his people. And as his followers, that's a lesson for us. We must have compassion on those around us to be willing, like Jesus did, to enter right into that crowd of people and deal with and be present for their needs in a very personal way, even if we get a little dirty and unclean in the process. That means not just those who are our friends. Remember what Jesus said, love your enemies, have compassion on them, pray for those who abuse you, bless those who curse you. Because Jesus did that for his enemies, as we talked about, you and me, when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. So we have the compassion of God. But then consider this call of Jesus to life. And I'm going to do something a little weird, but bear with me. The woman is a widow. Her husband has died. The son is left. The son now has a responsibility to care for his mother. Something that Jesus personally knows in his own life. But now here's the son dead. He can't care for his mother. A dead son cannot care for his widowed mother. And that might seem silly to talk about that responsibility when he can't even carry it out. He's dead. It's not his fault. But think about it this way. Every single person, every single person on the face of the earth has the responsibility to obey God. There's not one who has an excuse, as Paul in Romans. Every single one must seek him out, must follow him, ought to repent and ought to believe. But here's the deal. They can't. They're dead. They're spiritually dead. We make mistakes in theology. Just bring this up briefly. We can talk about it later if you want. When we say something ought to be and automatically conclude that they can. It's a philosophical deal. It's a theological deal. But anytime we see an ought and automatically assume that you can, we fall into error. Pelagius, Arminius... A whole bunch of them. So here's, here's a situation where this son illustrates a, a spiritual principle for us. Spiritually dead people can't do what they ought to do. Obey God. It's ridiculous to expect it of them because they're just as dead as that son laying on the bier. And that's the beauty of the call of Jesus. The beauty of Jesus' call to sinners to repent 
and calling those of us who have repented and believed to follow him. We can't do that unless he first gives us life. We have to be born again. We have to be regenerated. None of this is possible without the call to life. And then when we're called to life, just as the son is given to the mother, can speak and can serve her, now we can speak and serve our God. This is the love of God. Seen over and over again in Scripture. His great compassion, His great mercy for sinners, that He calls us from death to life. And that we're born again by His power. We can't do it on our own. Nicodemus had to learn. You have to be born again. The Ephesians had to learn. You must be brought from death to life. And so it is for all. Everyone, to serve God, must be born again. And then moving beyond the story, this son, the son's eventually going to die again. So will others that we hear Jesus raised from death. Jairus' daughter, later on in Luke. Lazarus, his good friend, one of the most amazing and wonderful stories in Scripture, I think, in John 11. They're going to die. But there's one thing that's right about what these people have seen, as we've said. God has visited his people in Jesus. Some of those are going to rebel, raise up, rise up against him and put him to death. But here's the thing, if leprosy can't make Jesus a leper, if an unclean dead person can't make him unclean, death can't make him dead. Praise God for that. Death cannot kill the Son of God. We can go back to John Owen again, the great book that he wrote, The Death of Death and the Death of Jesus. Death died on the cross when the Son of God died because Jesus' death was not final, but rather he rose from death and therefore conquered it. That work of conquering is still going on, but Paul says, as we read in 1 Corinthians 15, the last enemy to be defeated is death. Defeated already, the final battle yet to be fought. But a day is coming when every single person who's put their faith, hope, and trust in Jesus, repenting of their sin and accepting Him as Savior, will rise from death to new eternal life. Get up and walk. Rise up out of the grave and never die again. That's that's a remarkable thought. And that's why John Owen's quote is so poignant. I am not in the land of the living. I'm in the land of the dying. But I soon will be in the land of the living. That's powerful. That's real life. That's why we have that otherworldly perspective that Jesus talks about in the Beatitudes, that he talks about in the Sermon on the Mount that I went through last week. We think about life differently, and so we act differently based on that 
completely different understanding of how the world really works and what's really coming. Our God is a God who keeps his promises, and his promises are certain and true. Those who look to those promises are the ones who are blessed, not the ones who are rich in this life. Their reward, they've got their reward, says Jesus. Let them have it. They're to be pitied. Woe to them that they find satisfaction here in the circumstances of this life. Those who have that perspective can look at an enemy with love. Truly look at an enemy with love. Treat that enemy with love. Because we know this isn't what it's all about. Let them have the victory here. Temporarily. It's only temporary. Christ is putting all his enemies under his feet. It's only a short victory. We win because Christ wins. That victory is coming. Those who have this kind of perspective realize the sinfulness of their own sin. Why does God put an ought out there, a law, a requirement, a precept, a rule, all those synonyms we have from Psalm 119? Why does he put those requirements out there if we have no ability to follow them? On the surface of things, that might seem a little perverse, a little mean, but he does it to teach us a lesson. You can't do it yourself. You can't. Admit it and look to the one who did it for you. Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh. Jesus is calling. Truly calling. Repent. Follow me live. I'm reminded of another passage. We can close with this from 1 John. Kind of an echo of the gospel that speaks about the the word made flesh. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Get that phrase? The word of life. Jesus calls us to life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also. That's my job here this morning my privilege, but it's also your privilege as you go from this place as well. Proclaim to others the call of life that is found only in Jesus Christ.
Let's pray. Father, we are dead without Christ. We are dead without the work of your Holy Spirit in us to bring life. So we give you praise and thanks this morning again that you have called us to new life in Christ our Savior, called us to repentance and faith, made it possible for us to believe by giving us this gift. What a great and powerful and wonderful work of your grace and mercy toward us. We are eternally thankful. And we can be eternally thankful because we have the promise of eternal life in Christ our Savior. We pray that that word would go out, that the call would go out with power, that many would repent and many would follow and many would find new life in Christ Jesus. Use us, Lord, for that purpose, according to your good purposes and according to your good will. We ask all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.